I have a little science challenge for you tonight, uh, a little biology challenge, if you will. How would you define a mammal? How would you define a mammal? So su suppose that's your assignment. What are you going to do? Well, you might consult a dictionary. A dictionary will give you a definition of a mammal. You might go to a science textbook. You'll surely find a definition there. You particularly might look at a biology book and get the definition. Here's an abbreviated definition of a mammal. A mammal is a creature characterized by certain traits. A mammal has hair. A mammal is warm-blooded. And mammals nurse their young. Okay? So at least those three basic characteristics would be found in any definition of a mammal. So what, what is a mammal? A dog is a mammal. Uh, a dog has hair. It's warm-blooded. It nurses its young. A cat is a mammal. Uh, human beings are mammals, according to this very simple definition that we have derived. A bird, on the other hand, is not a mammal. Although a bird is warm-blooded, it doesn't have hair, it doesn't nurse its young, it's not a mammal. A caterpillar uh, is not a mammal. A caterpillar has hair, uh, but it does not nurse its young, and so on and so forth. So you find the identifying characteristics, and then you can, then you can say what is and what isn't a mammal. All right. So our lesson tonight is not about biology. Our lesson tonight is about something way more important than that. But here's the point we want to make. There are lots of churches right here in our own immediate community that have some of the traits of the church that you read about in the Bible. But just as a just as an animal is not a mammal unless it has all the necessary characteristics, these various religious organizations are not the church that you read about in the Bible unless they possess all the characteristics that you read about in the Bible. So that's the lesson that we want to review tonight for a few minutes. We want to look at just a few basic truths concerning the church you can read about in your Bible. And I hope you see the comparison to the biology analogy that we offered earlier. In order for, a, for a, something to be a mammal, it has to have all the defining characteristics. In, in order for a church to be the church that you read about in the Bible, it has to have all the defining characteristics. If it, if it has some but not all, it doesn't qualify, all right? So that's, that's the, the sort of the track that we want to follow in our lesson tonight. Thanks for being here on this Sunday night. We appreciate your diligence to come back on Sunday night and to join in worship to God. I saw some statistics from a church just recently, just this last week, in fact, and the Sunday night community, the Sunday night attendance was literally less than half of the Sunday morning attendance. And the same was true of Wednesday night, less than half of the Sunday morning attendance. And that would be very discouraging. If, if, in fact, I would argue that would be completely unacceptable. We just, we just couldn't live with that at College View, and we commend you for making this a church that's not like that, that we do have good attendance on Sunday night and Wednesday night. We can always do better, and, and all of us, uh, that, that outcome is dependent upon all of us being diligent to be here, and you are, and we appreciate you tonight. So what kind of things would you say are some of the identifying characteristics of the New Testament church? This is an old approach, by the way. 
gospel preachers, I think, for a long, long, long time have been using this kind of a identifying characteristics of the New Testament church kind of, of uh, uh, lesson. And that's just basically what this is. We won't hit them all, but I hope that we can hit a number of important ones. And the reason that we want to do this uh, is because we need to be familiar with this information. We need to be ready to explain this kind of information to other people. And then I believe that we should be committed to defend the truth about the church we read about in the Bible. So let's, let's just begin. We're just going to kind of go rapidly through a number of points. But the first thing that we would point out about the church you read about the Bible is that it belongs to Jesus. Uh, the church does not belong to me or you or anyone else. The church belongs to Jesus. In the text that Ben read for us just a minute ago from Matthew 16, Jesus said to his apostles, Whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a lot in that text, and we've often had to explain that, that, that business about Peter's, the comment about Peter. Then we're not going to dive into that tonight. I'm just using this text here specifically to identify that Jesus called it my church. The church belongs to Jesus. In Acts chapter, the reason why it belongs to him is in Acts 20, verse 28. It says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. The reason why the church belongs to Jesus is he purchased it. And the, and the purchase price was his own blood. So the church belongs to Jesus. That being the case, I think that our terminology ought to reflect that. Uh, and, and I think we're usually pretty careful about that. Not everybody is so careful, but in other words, you ought to come over to our church and visit next Sunday. No, it's not our church. Well, at my church, this is the way we do this. No, it's not my church. And I, I think typically we're pretty careful about that. But let's just make sure that we are, that it, in, in our verbal expressions, relative to the church we don't mistakenly suggest it belongs to anybody other than jesus so that's just terminology but in actual practice we need to be really careful too because you don't take liberties with things that belong to someone else and you don't make changes or alterations to something that belongs to someone else for instance uh, if i borrowed your car uh, and I had it for a few days. And when, when you got it back, I had done a number of customizations to it. You know, uh, maybe I, uh, uh, didn't like the color. And so I painted it one of those. I, I decided to do this. I decided to paint it one of those rainbow kind of things that depending on what angle you look at it in the sun, it changes color. I, that's really cool. I'm going to paint the car that color, you know. Uh, maybe I don't like your hubcaps. And so I take them off, you know, and, and do, do, do several other things that, that just suit me. No, you don't do that. It does, that car doesn't belong to me. I can't make those kind of changes. We need to have, the, the religious world needs to have that opinion about the church that belongs to Jesus. Uh, uh, it belongs to him, and therefore we are not at liberty to change the details about the church that belongs to him. 
Let me suggest to you that the church that you're reading about in the Bible wears the name of Christ and not the names of men. This is a really simple point, but I think it is absolutely necessary. One of the things that we point out is that the church is called the bride of Christ. And so for all of us who are husbands, who have brides, we want our bride to wear our name, not somebody else's name. And so, you know, uh, uh, here's Yancey Smith, but Allison calls herself Jones. She's Allison. No, she's not Allison Jones. That wouldn't work. Yancey would have a fit about that if Allison decided to call herself by some name other than his. And all of us as husbands would feel that same way. The church wears the name of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ and it wears his name, not the names of men. But I say not the names of men. That seems like that should be such a simple point and we wouldn't even hardly have to stress it. But there are well-known religious organizations that wear the names of the Lutheran church. Well, the Lutheran church is named for Martin Luther, a man, a mortal man. Uh, have you seen the Wesleyan Methodist churches? Uh, John and Charles Wesley were reformers and the Wesleyan Methodist church is named after them. Actually, any name that you would choose other than the name of our Lord Jesus uh, would be out of bounds. We, the church should not wear the name of men. Now, we, we understand, and I, I know that this quibble can be made, there are different definitions or, or there, there are different uh, descriptions of the, uh, of the church in the, in the New Testament. For instance, sometimes it's called the church of the firstborn. Uh, it is also called the church of God. But it wears the name of Jesus. It can't wear the name of men. Acts 4 verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name is important. <clears throat> and in regards to the name, it's actually found. The name of the Lord Church is actually found in the New Testament. Uh, again, this seems like it ought to be a logical requirement. If we're... Notice our title. Our title is The Church You Read About in the Bible. Well, if it's the church you read about in the Bible, then you ought to be able to read about it in the Bible. I, I, I can't read about the Baptist church in the Bible. It's just not there. But I can read about the church of Christ in the Bible. In Romans 16, verse 16, it says, All the churches of Christ salute you. We might take a minute to, to explain the, the, the plurality here. He's talking about different local congregations, various congregations that he calls the churches of Christ. But there, there, we have, there we have that name, churches of Christ. If it's the church you read about in the Bible, you, you ought to be able to read about this name in the Bible. And in this case, we can. We talked a little bit about this a minute ago, but certainly we know that Jesus is the head of the church. In Colossians 1.18, he is the Head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head, or gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of, uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm blending my translations here. Let me start this. So this is the ESV. God put all things under Jesus' feet, gave him as a head, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church 
is his body. Now, we're going to emphasize that some more here in a minute. But just think about this in the very logical, common sense, real way. The head directs the body. Your head tells your body what to do. That's the way that works. We understand that. Uh, in, in regards to the church, we need to respect that as well. The head, Jesus is the head. Notice he is the head over all things to the church. Well, if he is the head, then the head gets to tell the body what to do. And so the word of our Lord Jesus is final. There are no synods or conventions or councils of men. There are, there's, there's no concept of majority rule. There's no voting and passing new, new laws or altering old laws because all such authorities, that belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to the body. But in religion today, we've got the body directing its own affairs. You know, uh, you can almost picture a chicken with its head cut off running around in circles. That's sort of the picture of the, of the religious world because they have, they have detached the body from the head and the body is calling its own shots. That just doesn't work. The head is in full control of the body. Jesus is the head. He gets to, the, to have the authority as to what the body, the church, does. This is a point we have to talk about a lot. But in regards to the, the church you read about in the Bible, there's just one. Now, that's not true in the religious world. In the religious world, there are thousands of different, distinctly different churches. But in the Bible, you read about only one. So again, we're talking about the church you can read about in your Bible and in regards to the church you're reading about the Bible, there is just one. We've talked before about the term denomination or denominationalism. And th- that word, by definition, means division. You know, I always think of it in terms of our studies back in grade school where we studied fractions. And so we had the fraction three over four. Three-fourths, three over four. Three, the number above the line was the numerator. The number below the line was the denominator. And three over four, the fraction three over four, actually can be represented mathematically as three divided by four. Four is the denominator. It's what does the dividing. That's what the name means. That's what the word means. And so denominationalism uh, is in the very nature of the word itself, denoting division in the religious world. The world has been sold on that. The world seems to think that that is just fine. But the New Testament doesn't talk that way. The New Testament speaks of only one church, not thousands of churches. Go back again to Ephesians chapter 1. We read this a minute ago. God put all things under Jesus' feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, The church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And then what we often do, and and I think we've studied this so many times, I hope all of us are familiar with making this argument, so that the church is the body. And then in the same epistle, when we get to chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, it lists seven things of which there are just one. We don't have to read all of that, but it starts out there as one body and one spirit. Just you called one, hope you're calling. One body. So, notice, there's one body 
and the body is the church. If there's just, if the body is the church and there's just one body, how many churches are there? Well, there's just one. Again, people don't like to hear that so much. That's not a very popular concept in our world today. In fact, we get criticized pretty roundly for making that point, but it's what the Bible says, right? That's not our argument. That's the Bible's argument. How many churches are there? Well, there's just one. Go back again to the, to the text that Ben read in Matthew 16. We don't have to read that all again, but down here to this last expression, Jesus said, I will build my church. Singular, not churches, not plural. I will build my church. One, not many. One, not even two, just one. And so when, in regards to the church that we read about in the Bible, there is just one. Concerning the church you read about in the Bible, it has no creed but the Bible itself. You understand the idea of a creed. A creed is a denominational rule book. And so various religious organizations write their creeds and they, and, and they put into their creeds the, the rules that they expect to be governed by and so forth. But I can remember, even way back when I was just a boy, I can remember preachers denouncing the idea of denominational creeds with this simple argument. If it has more in it than is in the Bible, it's too much. If it has less in, if, if this creed has less in it than is in the Bible, it, it has too little. If it has exactly in it what the Bible says, well, we've already got the Bible, we don't need it. And so there's absolutely no need for a human creed when it comes to regulating the affairs of the church. But men, of course, have been determined to have their creeds. And they go way back. One of the earliest and best knowns of all the creeds that have ever been written is the Nicene Creed. That was written in 325 A.D. There was the Augsburg Confession in 1530. There was the Westminster Confession of Faith, also very well known, written in 1646. Those, couple, those, those and others were written during the time of the Reformation. Did you know, I didn't know this until I was doing a little research here. Did you know that a new creed came out for evangelical churches the Nashville Statement, written in 2017. Did you know there was such a thing? The Nashville Statement, written in 2017. We're saying all of that is wrong. And there is no creed for the church to read about in the Bible, except the Bible itself. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the part of that verse that we very often emphasize. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the ordinances of God. I shouldn't, I shouldn't call for my authority the Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this and this, and therefore... So what? I mean, the reaction to that ought to be a big so what? That's a creed written by men. We want to go by the Bible. The church reading about the Bible uh, goes by no other creed than the Bible itself. The terms of entrance to the church read about in your Bible are spelled out. The New Testament very plainly says what one must do in order to be a member of the church that you read about in the Bible. We... we really put a lot of emphasis on what we identify as the plan of salvation. How is one saved? 
And we often go through the steps in the plan of salvation. Hear the truth, believe the truth, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. And, and very often we, we recite verses that go with every one of those steps. Uh, here, Romans 10, 17, have faith, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Confess, Romans 10, verse 10. Repent, Luke 13, 3. Be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38, Mark 16, 16. So, all of that is identified in the Word of God in the New Testament. And we know that those who did that, Acts 2 verse 47 says that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so here's how you get into this church. It's not by some rules that have been generated in a religious synod or convention somewhere. The, what, it, what you must do in order to be a part of the church read about the Bible, is identified in the Bible. We put a lot of emphasis on that, and I think rightly so. If, if those terms of entrance are not taught by a particular religious group, then that's not the church read about in the Bible. R- recently, Franklin Graham, who is Billy Graham's son, of course, Billy Graham died several years ago. Franklin Graham has sort of taken over uh, where his father left off. And he, that Franklin Graham or Billy Graham organization have been doing a lot of commercials. I, I, I've seen them on a lot of sporting events, uh, football games and so forth. And they're just short little blurbs about what you should do to be saved. And in every one of them, the message is you have to believe in Jesus and pray this prayer. And, so, and then he actually recites what we identify as the sinner's prayer. Well, that sinner's prayer is nowhere in the Bible. And that idea of how to be saved is foreign to the Scriptures. And so the church that Franklin Graham is representing isn't the church of the New Testament because the terms of entrance that he is suggesting are foreign to the Word of God. The church you read about in your Bible worships according to the pattern set forth in the Word of God. We talk about, sometimes we talk about the five acts of worship. And we've engaged in those acts of worship on this Lord's Day. Uh, we come together and, and we sing and we pray and we teach, teach and or preach. We observe the Lord's Supper and we contribute of our means. The so-called five acts of worship. Now, the reason we do those things is because that's the pattern of worship that's set forth in the New Testament. We've got to do those things. We've got to do them correctly according to the pattern set forth in the Scripture and do them sincerely from the heart. We know very well John 4, 24, God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We, we always explain it takes both of those things. We've got to do it the way it's, the, the way it's spelled out in the Scripture. It's got to be in truth. But we could go through all the right mechanics we could outwardly be doing everything just exactly right but if our our heart is not in it, if it's not sincere it won't get the job done it takes both things both are necessary but the religious world has downplayed the necessity of truth in the religious world of our day it's all about the heart and as long as you are sincere that's all that matters the scripture says sincerity is extremely important But it also says truth. Worshiping in truth is essential as well. And so the church you read about in your Bible worships according to that pattern. 
Let me suggest to you that the church you read about in your Bible is not engaged in the entertainment business. I think a number of years ago it wouldn't have been so necessary to even make this point because I, I think it was generally understood that the churches are not in the entertainment business. But unfortunately, now I think it's extremely essential to stress because of the modern practices of most religious organizations. They've got heavily involved in the entertainment business. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul participating in, maybe even organizing, the softball team for the church at Corinth? Or maybe uh, he was present when the church at Ephesus had their big annual Christmas party. You can't even fathom that. You can't. I mean, it's it's just out of the realm of even things conceivable. You don't, you just know that would never be the case. The churches, the local congregation that comprised the church that you read about in the New Testament, absolutely did not do such things. In fact, when one church seemed to be approaching that line, Paul sternly rebuked them in First Corinthians eleven verse twenty-two. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Again, that is, that is an identifying characteristic of the New Testament church. Not found very much in the religious world today. They've made that a primary emphasis of their religious activity And it's contrary to the word of God. Finally, let me suggest to you that that Jesus is going to return for his church. Jesus is going to return for the church that you read about. That's why everything that we've said tonight, and I think we could expand that list somewhat. But everything we've said tonight is important for this reason. Because Jesus is coming back to claim his church. Unfortunately... All these other religious organizations that are not true to what you read about in the Bible, that do not possess the characteristics and traits that are identified in the Word of God, they are not going to be rewarded by the Lord because they haven't followed the authority of Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, beginning, Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Christ loved the church, gave Himself for it, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so what, So someone says, well, that's a big deal. You know, I mean, so what if we got a different creed? Or so what if we, maybe we innovated our worship a little bit? It's, you know, we've, we've changed a few things. We've added, we've added an instrument of music because we really like it that way. So what's the big deal with that? Uh, so what if we have decided that you can become a member of this church by doing some something different than what that plan of salvation that you just enumerated. What's the big deal? Why, why are you all so adamant about these things? I really think it's for this reason right here. Because Jesus is coming back for His church. Jesus is coming back for the church that you read about in the Bible. Jesus is not coming back for these other religious organizations who have violated the authority of Scripture. That's why it is so very important. And so, what do we do? Well, we look, let's say that you, that you land in a new place, in a new geographical location. 
Maybe it is that you have landed in Columbia, Tennessee. You know, you've never been here before, but your, your, your life situation has brought you here. And now, I've got to tell you, there's hundreds of churches right here in Columbia, Tennessee. Which one are you going to identify with? Which one are you going to seek out? Well, I'll tell you, what you do is you begin a process of elimination. You look at these identifying characteristics and you sort of, here's, here's the list of identifying characteristics and here's what this particular religious group does. And we go down until we find a contradiction, that one's eliminated. We find another, we go down until there's some contradiction, that one is eliminated. We look for the identifying characteristics, we compare what we see to what the Bible teaches we want to be a part of the church that you can read about in the Bible. That's really a, 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 a very simple concept, but a necessary one. We want to be the church you read about in the Bible. Now, I think we should make this disclaimer before we end our lesson. So are you guys, so are you all in this local congregation? Are you claiming perfection in all of that? Are you claiming that you have follow, flawlessly followed what the New Testament teaches? Well, our answer to that, that's our goal, that's our objective, that's what we're striving for. Now, if we're wrong, and if it can be pointed out that we're wrong, we want to, we want to change because we want to be just like that church you read about in the New Testament. And if, if there's anything we're doing that is contrary to that, we need to know we want to know. People would be doing us a great favor to point that out to us. Uh, we have that as our primary objective. We're, we're not saying we're perfect in that, but we're saying that is our perfect model that we're attaining to. And we hope we can get there. Thanks for your good attention what we had to say. I don't think that's new ground. We haven't plowed any new ground tonight, but I really do think it's important for us from time to time to review things like that so that, first of all, we're familiar with it, but secondly, we can teach that to others and defend those truths in, a, in a, an increasingly diverse religious community. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to sing a song of invitation. Just a few minutes ago, we went through the very simple steps in the plan of salvation. If you need to obey that, we'd be anxious to help you tonight. We'd be more than ready to study more with you. If you're a Christian already, but you're in need of the prayers of the saints, let us know. We'd be glad to pray with you and for you. If we can help, come while we stand and sing this song.